Well, it's good morning. It's good to see everyone. If you'll take your Bibles and open to John chapter 3, we continue in our study of the book of John. We've come to um, a passage this morning that is very familiar to us. In John three sixteen through 21, verse 16 especially is familiar to everyone. We uh, memorized that early in our Christian life, many of us, and uh, we see it uh, placard on billboards and at least the reference placard on billboards and stadiums and those kinds of things all the time. John three sixteen verses 16 through 21. And I will just say this about it, just to let you know where we're headed in this. I would say verses, verse 1, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the divine act. That is what God did. Verses 17 to 21, we'll also look at this morning, that is the human response to what God has done. And so just to give you an idea where we are headed in this, John chapter 3 is a conversation so far between Jesus and Nicodemus, a Jewish leader, ruler, a, a teacher of Israel, And he's answering the question, the most important question that anybody can ask. It's the ultimate question. What do I need to do to get into the kingdom of God? What happens to me when I die is another way to say that. How can I know that I'm going to be with God when I die? Everybody does not go to heaven. Contrary to popular opinion, when you die does not mean heaven. Some people think all you got to do to go to heaven is die. That's not true. That is not true. Jesus lays out what must happen to a person for them to have eternal life. What must happen to a person for them to be able to enter the kingdom of God. That is what is on Nicodemus' heart when he comes to Jesus by night. He is a religious leader, he's a Pharisee, extremely moral guy, and yet something within him makes him wonder enough for Jesus to speak to him about this very, very important issue. It's hard to know exactly where uh, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus ends in this uh, passage. Uh, Some people think the conversation should end in verse 13, and the rest of it from 14 on is commentary by John, the human author of the book. But if you have a Bible that has red letters in it, you know everybody does not agree with that. Because most a lot of commentators think Jesus is still talking here in 16 through 21. We're still in the midst of the conversation with Nicodemus. It's not just commentary by John on the conversation. It's actually Jesus' words speaking these words to Nicodemus. It doesn't really matter. We believe it's all God-breathed anyway, so that's not an issue. But there's no quotation marks in Greek to let us know exactly where, uh, where it ends. And so the point is whether it's just commentary by John on the conversation or if we're still in the midst of the conversation, that is not really that huge of a deal. Because Nicodemus needs to hear all of this. He needs to hear all of this. He is trusting in something other than Christ. He's trusting in himself, as most Pharisees would. He's trusting in his own good works. 
He's trusting in his own accomplishments. He's trusting in Nicodemus. Take Nicodemus into heaven. And Jesus says to him in the first part of chapter 3, he says, you must be born again. And then he goes on to say, describing that further, he goes on to say, the spirit is like the wind. It blows and no one knows where it blows. No one knows where it's going to go or how it's going to go. You can't manipulate the wind. You can't manipulate the spirit. You can't control the spirit. The spirit blows where it will, moves where it will. What you see in those opening verses of John chapter 3, I would call divine, the divine sovereignty of God in salvation. I shouldn't say I would call that. A lot of people call it that. But divine sovereignty of God in salvation, that's what you see. You can't birth yourself. You can't reborn yourself. You can't control the Holy Spirit. You can't manipulate the Holy Spirit. You can't make that happen, that event happen. That is divine sovereignty in salvation. What we're coming to this morning is the other side of the coin, human responsibility. In the same passage, we have both divine sovereignty of God and the human side or human responsibility as we move into 16 through 21. And I would just say this to you, both are true. Both are true. I hold strongly to divine sovereignty of God in salvation. I hold strongly to that truth. But I know that somehow God works in his divine sovereignty in someone's life to bring them to a point where they must express faith in Christ. They must do something like that to believe. They must believe in Christ. I don't know how that works. I just know that I must teach both of those things. Yes, God does this, but you must believe. You must believe. And that sounds... I can't reconcile that. That's a parallel truth that you see in Scripture. Jesus does nothing to reconcile that. He just teaches them both in the very same chapter. It's divine sovereignty, human responsibility. You see both of those here. He doesn't give us any kind of, uh, well, let me explain this to you. He doesn't do that. He doesn't give us any of that whatsoever. It's uh, work of God. You have no part in it. But God brings to the point where you must believe. I don't know how that works. Someone asked Spurgeon, how do you resolve or how do you reconcile? How do you reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility? And Spurgeon said, said, I don't try to reconcile them because you don't have to reconcile friends. He says they're friends. They go together. They're not in opposition to each other. They run side by side throughout the Scripture. And so we must, must acknowledge that it's a work of God, the drawing of God in John 6, God sovereignly working in someone's life, borning, regenerating them, and bringing them to somehow that's this human side of belief and trust in Christ. Both are necessary. Both are shown here in these verses that we've been looking at in John chapter 3. What brought us to verse 16 of John chapter 3 was verse, 
You remember verse 15? So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. You saw that statement talking about the Son of Man must be lifted up. Uh, Jesus is, we're going to assume Jesus is saying all of this. The Son of Man must be lifted up. This is what God does for you. He did this other stuff to you, but he's doing this for you. He lifts up the Son of Man, verse 16, so that, notice verse 16, for God so loved the world, he did that because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The motivation behind God sending his Son into the world, the motivation behind God lifting up or crucifying his Son was his love. His love for the world. That's what verse 16 is. It's telling you the divine motivation behind the lifting up of the Son of Man, Christ going to the cross. We talked about that in depth last week. We went through the uh, first part of that verse last week, uh, just talking about what those words mean throughout that statement, for God so loved. Uh, it's an unconditional love. You can't get this uh, yourself love. It's not the kind of love you and I naturally have. I have a love that uh, is based on the attraction of the object. I have a love that's based on what the object can do for me. I have a love that's based on what can I get back. This is not God's love. God loves his enemies, folks. He loves people that do not even think about him people who do not even consider him, people that actually hate him. Because the word world there is talking about humanity. He has that love for humanity. It's very important to think about that because the Jew would have read that verse and said, oh, no, 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 he only loves Jews. Not the whole world. That didn't fit into their categories. That did not fit into their thinking that God would love outside the, the, the circle of the Jews. And some have wanted to interpret that, as I mentioned to you last week, um, Calvinist, which, of which I would be one, okay? I would be one. But Calvinist, some have said it's the world of the elect, but that's not true either. This is not talking about the world of the elect. It's not a subset within the world. It's humanity, all humanity. He loves all humanity. That he gave his only begotten son. And I, and I, I recognize, and I recognize the degrees of love, that God has a different love for the world than he would have for uh, the believer. There is degrees of love. In fact, I will go far, this far to say this. God's love for the world is a temporary love in one sense. It's a temporary love. Because if you spurn that love, if you reject that love, that love will turn to hate, will it not? It will turn to hate. And so keep that in mind. It, it, that's not true for the believer. The love for the believer, John 13, he loved his own to the end. He, he has an enduring love for me and you. And he, he said those words in the upper room when he knew his disciples were about to really blow it big. He still loved them to the end. A love that will endure forever. That's not true for the love that he has for all humanity. A love that has a condition 
And that is, we see that in the passage today, a response to that love. What is that response? Very important verses. And I, I just did not get a chance to finish everything in this. I, I, I want to just jump into the expression of that love was he gave his only begotten son. He gave um, a love that sacrifices. He gave his only begotten son in terms of his unique son, the unique son of God, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Some people think that God loves everybody. He loves them so much. He's going to save everybody. Uh, Everybody is going to go to heaven when they die. Uh, If you don't believe in Jesus in this life, you have a chance in the next life to believe in Jesus. But the point is nobody, nobody will go to hell. Nobody will perish. That is not what this verse says. This verse is speaking in light of the reality of hell, some you will. The reason, the reason God, the reason Christ came into the world was to rescue, to on a rescue mission to save us from hell. We are already condemned. Carson says it well in his commentary. We are not neutral. Jesus did not come into a neutral world. He came into a world that was condemned. He came into a world that was under the wrath of God, that was under judgment of God. He came into that kind of world, and he came to rescue people out of that world. Everybody does not go to heaven when they die. Only those, only those who have faith and trust in Jesus. You see that so clearly here. This is the divine act. This is what God did. This is what God did, sending His Son. Sending His Son, saying this, saying this. You can have His righteousness for your sin. Your sin. He will take on your sin. And you can have His righteousness. You can take... He will be punished in your place. And you can go free. He's your substitute. That's what these verses are te- this verse is teaching us. If it's teaching us anything, it's teaching us that Jesus Christ is our substitute because we deserve to perish. And He perished for us. He took on judgment that we deserve. He took on the con- condemnation of God that we all deserve. Those short hours on the cross, God poured out His wrath on Christ. Wrath that I deserve and wrath that you deserve. That's what we mean when we say Christ died for our sin. He was the sacrifice for our sin. God judged him for our sin. It's a very important doctrine. It's a very important understanding. And by faith in Christ, we're justified. By faith in Christ, we're declared right before God because we look to Christ as our substitute. He died the death I deserve. He lived the life I could never live. He lived it for me. His righteousness is imputed to me. I need righteousness to go to heaven. I can't get it myself. My righteousness is in Christ. My life is hidden in Christ. That's what I'm trusting in. When I stand before God one day, which all of us will, we'll stand before the judge one, God one day, why should I let you into my heaven? Not because I'm a good person, not because I went to church, not even because I was a pastor of a church. It's because my life is hidden in Christ. Because my life, my trust is in Christ, in Christ alone for my salvation.
So this love has meaning to it. You understand that. It, it meant something. Jesus did not just come running into the world saying, I love everybody. I love everybody. I'm example to everybody. I want to be a good example to everybody. And then he just climbed up on the cross and died. That is meaningless. What does that mean? What does that mean to do something like that? Yet many people preach a Jesus that just simply came to be an example of loving people. That's meaningless. Listen, a transaction took place on the cross. A necessary transaction took place on the cross to keep me from having to experience hell and perishing. A necessary transaction happened there. And yet so many want to water it down with a gentle Jesus and they don't want a bloody cross, and they don't want to talk sacrifice language, and they don't want you to talk, think of God being one who would kill his own son so that sinners could go free. But that's exactly what he did. And why did he do that? He loved. He loved. And I don't understand that love, and you don't understand that love, but that is sacrificial, that is sacrifice. He gave His only begotten Son so we could have eternal life. So, let me show you the implications of that. So that's the divine act. You got that? Verse 16. That's the divine act. Now we move into the human response. The human response. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Let me just start out by saying this. Jesus Christ divides the world into two camps. The world does not like us to talk like this, but this is exactly what happens. The flashpoints Christ. He divides humanity into two categories, two categories. Turn to 1 John chapter 5 for a moment. 1 John chapter 5. Come back to John in just a second. I started reading that and realized I want to tell you this first. Go to 1 John chapter 5. This is what he's done to the human race. Two categories. You see this in 5.11 of 1 John. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. And he who has the Son, notice, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. There's your categories. Those who have the Son, those who do not have the Son. Those who have life, those who do not have life. These things I have written to you, verse 13 says, who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Those who believe have the life. If you don't have the Son, verse 12, you do not have the life. That's your categories right there. Your two categories. Notice, you don't have to turn there. You see the categories in Matthew 25, right? Sheep, goats. Sheep and goats. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, he's got two groups. Notice in 2 Thessalonians 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says in verse 5 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 5. 
Verse 6, to start in verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Talking to the believers in Thessalonica who are under persecution. It's only just, he says, for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Verse 7. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Notice, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one group. That's the group who um, do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who have not embraced the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who have totally ignored John 3.16, the offer of John 3.16. He says, verse 9, these, this group will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. That's one group. That's a group. The second category, verse 10, and when he comes to be glorified, notice, in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among, to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. And that's the second group, those who marvel at his coming. Not those who are facing retribution at his coming, but those who marvel at his coming. Two groups. Christ is the flashpoint. Separates. Think of Christ as like a rock in the stream. And life, human, humanity is like the stream, going down the stream. The rock, what does the rock do? The rock divides the water, doesn't it? It goes off in different directions. Some to the right, some to the left. Some to eternal life, some to eternal death. Think of a ship going, going in the waters. Same thing, a ship divides the waters. This way, this way. That's what I want you to see. Christ is the one that divides, divides humanity. Jesus said that, didn't he? He said, I will bring a division, a sword, between mother and father and sister and brother, families. Families divided, those who believe, those who do not. So, he, def- he, he divides between belief and unbelief. And you can't be in the middle on this, so don't think I can be one foot here and one foot there. That just doesn't work. That's an unbeliever. That's the definition of an unbeliever. That's the definition of a double-minded man. You either believe, embrace Christ, or you don't. Now I'll tell you, in John 3, what I'm fixing to show you is human responsibility. Remind you of that again, okay? Remind you of that once again. I could go to many passages that talk about divine sovereignty. You saw it in John 3, early, early verses. You see, but now we're talking verses here about human responsibility. It's very much an important part of the Bible, of the New Testament especially. For God did not send the Son into the world, verse 17, back to John chapter 3, I'm sorry, back to John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he does not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So, the word there probably should be condemned, not judged. He condemns the world. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. He came, came, as we learned in verse 16, he came as a saving act. He came as a saving act to express his love. God, God acted, sent his very best 
sent Christ into the world. Um, it's a saving act that he did. He did not come, it says, to condemn the world. And that's all true. He said he was the great physician when he came. He came uh, with, uh, with a message of forgiveness. Um, there were times when he would use condemning words in his, in his first coming. There were times when he would woe to the Pharisees. There were times when he would uh, say woe to Chorazin and Bethsaida. There were times when he would make statements like that. But what I want you to understand, I think, is makes this a little more clear to us, is that Jesus, when Jesus came, he came, um, basically, what, what we're learning here is the response determines for you why, what the purpose of his coming. That's what I want you to see. Because you see this flows right out of verse 16. The saving act is the emphasis here. And then you have a response in verse 17 and your response in verse 18. How you respond to it determines whether it's an act, excuse me, whether he came for the purpose of judgment or whether he came for the purpose of salvation. It's based on your response. It goes back to what I said earlier. God loves the world. He loves humanity. It's a love, though, that if it's spurned, that it will turn to hate and judgment. That's the reality of God's love. That's the same idea here. Basically, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That is certainly the heart of God in sending his son so that people would believe in him and have eternal life. But there's also the recognition in verse 18 um, that there will be those in the second part of that verse who do not believe and will then have, have been judged already. Sort of how... This flows somewhat. John 3.18 is um, the idea that we've all been graciously forgiven. The believer is graciously forgiven. We've passed out of judgment and are beyond judgment, but the unbeliever will face judgment. Verse verse 18 is... is, uh, the focus of the two responses. He says, he who believes in him is not judged. That would be us. That would be believers. Believers are beyond judgment. Believers will never enter into condemnation. Believers will never experience the wrath of God. That is what he is saying regarding believers. Believers Romans 5, 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We who were previously at war with God, we are now at peace with God. There is no longer a war going on between us and God. Christ is our peace. He is the one that came as the peace offering. Romans 8, 1, there is no, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Once again, to emphasize the point, he who believes in him, verse 18, who is not judged, we have passed beyond judgment. We will never be judged. God will never revoke that. God will never, ever consider judgment toward us again. That's the believer. That's the believer. Our response to the divine act is what brought that about. 
our belief in what Christ did, what God did in sending Christ is the reason we can say we're not going to be judged. We don't face any kind of judgment. We never will. Colossians 3 says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So we're, we're safe. We're eternally safe. Hidden in Christ. And a true believer has that assurance. My life is hidden in Christ. Turn to 1 John 4.16. 4.16. In 1 John 4.16, we'll be right back over to John again. But in 4.16, he says this. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God. God abides in him. We've come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. He's saying that, that love remains. Abide means to remain on us. By this, love, by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. And that's what I want you to see. We will have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We know, we know that because of God's love for us, we know because of our faith in Christ, we know because that abides in us that we have the confidence and that we don't have the fear of judgment. And he will never revoke that verdict, as I said earlier. Uh, he poured out all his wrath on Christ. There's no wrath left for you as a Christian. There's no judgment left for you as a Christian. Christ took all of it. He took all of it when he hung on the cross. God granted you the gift of faith. He granted you the gift of faith, and by that faith and because of that response, Christ promises you no condemnation. And so you see the second group in that verse, back to John chapter 3, verse 18. He who does not believe has, all, has been judged already. As I said earlier, Christ did not come into a neutral world, judged already means men are already under judgment. He's been judged already. The unbeliever, as, long, as you and I once were, we were already under judgment at one time. He said, and to the unbeliever who's already been judged, his destiny has been one of judgment. But now he's saying, because he does not believe, he has been judged already, and because he has not believed in the name of the Lord, because he has not believed in the name of the, of the, the only begotten Son of God, he is not going to be rescued from that judgment. He's not going to be saved from that judgment because he's rejected the only begotten Son of God. So he's just highlighting these two responses, these two human responses that people have to this divine act of God. Um, you say, why would Christ be the dividing line? And I, I think the key is in the word only begotten Son of God. You've seen that in verse 16. You've seen that in John chapter 1. Begotten means unique. Begotten means there is none other like him. Begotten means he didn't send Moses or uh, one of the prophets. He didn't send uh, Elijah. He didn't send any. He sent his only son, the one most God-like he sent into the world, one who has all the attributes of God he sent into the world. In other words, there is, there's no one like him, 
only begotten, totally unique. There is no one that he could have sent that could accomplish what he accomplished. Any normal, just a man would have been a sinful man, would have been a sinner. He needed one who was absolutely perfect. One who was God, who could live a perfect and holy life. There is no other plan that exalts Christ in the world. Islam, Hinduism, all of the other isms out there, none of them exalt Christ. They all reject the only begotten Son of God. None of them make much of Christ. None of them make much of the gospel. Therefore, none of them will save. Christianity is the dividing line because of the only begotten Son. The only begotten Son who is God, uniquely loved by God. Only the, only the Son of God is called Wonderful Counselor, Savior, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those words are not expressed to anybody else. Only to the unique Son of God. So there's no other way. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. That's why we make much of Christ. That's why, as we see here, in this verse, that's the reason um, people can experience judgment for rejecting Christ. You can say, well, I like, I like God, but I don't care much for Jesus. I don't mind worshiping God, but I don't really want to worship Jesus. And folks, that is offensive to God. That would be offensive to God. Jesus is the only way that you can approach God. Jesus is the only way that you can come into God's presence you can say, well, I just want to go get along with God. Get along with God. I don't really care to think about Jesus that much. But folks, that doesn't work. To love God is to love His Son. To love God is to recognize that the only access I have to God is through His Son. It's very important. I really like what we heard this morning um, uh, from Martin Luther, basically saying that... Um, Sinners, I can't remember if I can get this, wrote this down exactly right, but sinners are, are not loved because they are attractive. See, we think we've got to make our lives attractive so God will like us. He says sinners are not loved because they are attractive. They are attractive because they are loved. What that means is he loves us. He sees Christ through, he sees Christ through us. He looks at us because we're in Christ we're forgiven in Christ. We're one with Christ. We're in union with Christ. He sees Christ when he looks at us. That's what makes us attractive to him. You're not attractive in yourself. It's because of Christ that we have been made attractive to God. I always think about the Jesus hanging on the cross, the Father abandoning the Son. I always think about that. The Father, why have you forsaken me? And I think, you know, Jesus was forsaken so that God could look at me. God did not look at Christ. He was condemned. He became sin Christ, so Christ could look at me and you because of what Christ did. So, how you respond to Him tells tells you if his incarnation was for your salvation or for your judgment. That's what these verses are saying. These verses are saying that how you view the incarnation, Jesus coming into the world, dying on a cross uh, for our sin, how you view that tells us and tells you whether that coming of Christ was for your judgment 
or for your salvation. Your response. That's the emphasis of these verses. How you respond to that. And then he gives, then he talk, starts talking in verses 19, 20, and 21 about light. The light. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Verse 21, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So I have two more responses here. Two more human responses to the light. One of rejection, one of receiving. It's, it's almost just a different way of looking at what we've just seen. But I think what he does in these verses is he gives us some reasons why people reject the light in the first two verses. Verse 19 and 20, why, why people reject the light. I think one of the reasons you see for that is in verse 19, men love the darkness rather than the light. I would say one of the biggest reasons you encounter, and maybe this was you uh, before you became a Christian, and maybe it's you right now. One of the biggest reasons that you don't believe or trust or turn to Christ is because you love your sin. You love your sin more than Christ. You love your sin or some entangling sin. You know you, had ha- you know you would have to give it up. You know that if I came to Christ, he would probably want me to give that up. He would probably want me to repent of that and turn to him. But he's saying here, you love that more. Men reject the light because they love their sin more than Christ. They may believe that Christ is the Son of God. They may believe John 3.16. They may believe everything that says. But because they love their sin more, they reject Christ. They love the darkness more. They love their lusts more. They love their bitternesses more. They love their anger more. You know what it is in your own life. What sin is that you love more than Christ? As the rich young ruler, when he came, he wanted salvation. Jesus exposed what his real love was. He wanted to be rich. He turned away. He turned away. What darkness do you love so much? Think about that. What darkness do you love so much that you will not turn to Christ? That's exactly what John is saying here. This is the judgment. The light has come, and men love the darkness rather than the light. Secondly, it's an interesting word. Their deeds were evil. See that? This is another reason. But it's an imperfect tense. Imperfect tense. And it's interesting. In the imperfect tense, it means habitual action in the past. Sometimes people will not come to Christ because they've, had evil, they've done evil things in the past and they know their past and they know what they're like and they know they just can't do this. They just can't do this. I know my track record. I know I'm not good enough. I know how evil I have been. I know how I tend to fall back into things. I can't make myself better. I can't clean up my act enough. I can't make myself attractive to God that He would want me. 
That's the idea of that statement. It's interesting. I know there's got to be people in this room that think that. They think that God's grace is not for them. God would never show grace to them. God would never show the kind of love we're talking about here to them. The point is, I just want to say this to you. The point is, you're not good enough. That's your point. That's the point. None of us are good enough. The whole reason that Jesus had to come was because none of us are good enough. The whole reason that Jesus had to come and die on a cross, the whole reason for John 3.16 is because none of us are good enough. None of us measure up. None of us are attractive to God. None of us. None of us can keep the law. None of us can keep the rules. None of us can do any of those things to the perfection that God requires. None of us can do that. Only Christ did that. Yet so many get caught up in thinking, I have to wait until my life is cleaned up enough so God will have me. I know my track record. It doesn't look good. I know I can't do that. That's why some people don't come to the light. That's the reason some people reject the light. Maybe that's you. The third one you see in verse 20, for everyone who does evil hates the light. You might be here this morning hating that you are here. You might be here this morning hating the Bible and hating God and hating what the Scripture says and you're wishing you were somewhere else besides here. You, you hate the light. You hate the light. You, you hate what the Scriptures say and you wish God did not exist and you, and you wish that God had not come into the world and you wish and all of these things because you hate the light. It goes so much against you. you. You want to be God, maybe. You want to be in charge of everything. You don't want the light infringing on your darkness. You hate the light. You hate the truth. And fourthly, you see the shame and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Sometimes people are admit to admitting what things they have done. They want to keep the private things from anybody else. They don't want anybody to know and they don't want God to know. Like that's, sin just makes you foolish because guess what? God knows. Sin just makes me foolish. It makes me think I can hide from God. I can't hide from God. Shame, shame makes me, I, I don't want people to know that I'm a sinner. <laughs> well, you are. We all know it already. We know that about you because we know we are. We're all sinners. It looks different in our lives. It's manifested differently, but we all have the same sinful heart. We all have the same sinful heart, and there's none of us who um, have things that we aren't, quote, shamed of. We all experience shame, sin shames. Deeds will be exposed. It's like I don't want anybody to think badly about me. And I certainly want to keep up some kind of image. I want to keep up some kind of self-righteousness. These are things I believe Nicodemus certainly needed to hear in his self-righteousness system. 
People rename sins. We see this in our culture. People rename sins so they don't seem so evil. We've seen it with adultery. It's not, it's having an affair. It's an affair. Don't call it what it is. Adultery, it's sin. It's lust. It's violating God's law regarding regarding marriage. Fornication. They don't want to call it that. They want to call it an affair. They want to call uh, stealing, taking what I deserve. That's what you hear when people are stealing nowadays. Take what I deserve. That just sounds, that just sounds softer that I'm a thief. To steal. How about homosexuality or transgender lifestyle? They're called lifestyles now. It's not a sin. It's not an abomination before a holy God. It's not trying to attack God's design. It's not any of that. No, it's a lifestyle. I just have a lifestyle. Abortion, which is killing a baby in the mother's womb, is a choice now. You know that. You've heard that over and over. It's just a choice. Selfishness has been replaced with self-esteem. Just be careful of self-esteem movements. All they do is highlight self. That is it. What's, you think about anything that is wrong with our culture and all of these other things you're seeing in our culture, it's self-esteem. Everybody feels so good about themselves to do whatever they want to do and do whatever's right in their own eyes. And don't you dare say I'm wrong because that will damage my self-esteem. I need to be promoting everybody's self-esteem. And that's everybody's problem is they promoted their self-esteem so much they don't even have a need for salvation because they're so wonderful in their own eyes. Pornography is now entertainment. It's not lust and it's not... It's not allowing yourself to lust in your heart. It's not that anymore. Now it's just entertainment. Or atheism is now just being scientific. Just being scientific. You've seen these things. I'm not telling you some things you don't know, but that's just what we do because to hide the shame. Hide the shame and hide the guilt and come up with words that just soften it all so we can not be exposed. And have to say, I'm wrong, or this is a sin. Those are certainly things that we don't want to admit. When the man was standing in the temple and crying out to God, the the tax gatherer, he was crying out to God, admitting his sin. Forgive me, God, I have sinned. He wasn't telling God something God did not already know. He was just confessing. Confessing sin is agreeing with God that I'm what you say I am. That's all confession is. I'm just agreeing with you, God, that I am what you say. I see myself, God. I want to see myself the way you see me, not the way I have, the reality I have created around myself. That's what confession is. Whosoever will may come. That's what John 3.16 says. Whosoever. Whosoever. And then he says in John 3, 21, this is the second response. This is the response of transformation, of, uh, of, of rebirth. This is the right response, the right human response. 
And it's evidenced by, notice, outward deeds, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. He's born of God. His deeds give evidence to that fact. It's not his deeds that save him. It's not his deeds that make him right with God. Those deeds are wrought in God. Those are deeds that God has produced in him as a result of being born again. So I just say that to you this morning. I just say, you know, it's this divine act of John 3.16. This is what God has done. And whosoever will, whoever will believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That incarnation, that coming into the world and doing that, did it come to identify you as a believer or as an unbeliever? Did it come to bring about a response of rejection of God or acceptance? And that's why I pray this morning. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I pray that God would open your eyes to the truth. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. There is no other plan of salvation that takes you to God. There are a lot of plans out there that people will promote, but they are not about God and they're not about Christ and they don't deal with sin. And sin is your problem. Sin is your problem. And only Christ came to take away that problem when he hung on the cross. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for your truth and your word. God, we ask you to work in lives this morning who are here that, that may not know you, that may have never trusted you before that they have never put their faith in Christ. And I pray that this would be a time when they would believe, that you would grant them repentance, that they might believe, that they might have their eyes open to the truth of your gospel, that they might embrace Christ this morning. I pray, Father, that you would do that work. That is why you came. That is why you came into the world to give that offer of salvation to any who would believe. And I pray, God, that you would do that in hearts gathered in this room this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, listen, if you want to talk to somebody further about this, I mean, I'm available, Charlie's available, Doug's available, Ben's available. We have others in this church who are available. We'd love to talk to you about this because this is the most important issue, the most important issue. Nothing is more important than this. It's the ultimate question. You talk about a lot of meaningless things all the time. All of us do. But this is the one that really, really matters.